Today, on episode 11 of Tech Move, Rodney critiques Keith's short films for Virgin America Airlines. We also tell you how to actually add camera shake to your static footage. We talk to Keith about the latest in Adobe Premiere Pro CC techniques and bug reports. And Keith also updates us on how to fake out your Mac with a new gaming GPU card. That and much, much more right here on TechMove. Another glorious day here at the Tech Move Studios, and welcome everyone to episode 11. I am Rod Louie, nice to talk to you all, and with me again, my partner, Keith Moreau. Keith, are you there? I'm here, Rodney, excellent. I'm here. Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, you know, we've got another episode in the bag right here, and there's so much to talk about in this one. There is. We have a lot to talk about. Um, first thing I want to do, though, is I want to talk about helping the podcast. That's always a good thing. Folks, help out the podcast. <laughs> uh, uh, Keith, share with us, please. All you need to do is go to techmovepodcast.com slash Amazon and then buy something from Amazon. <laughs> That's it. That's right. I mean, it, heck, it could be a fantastic new camera. It could be electronic equipment. Crying out loud, it could be like a pair of walking shorts if you need them. Just go to techmovepodcast.com slash Amazon and let us take you to Amazon for all your shopping needs, huh? That's right. Yeah. And then just quickly, how to, how to find us, how to subscribe. We are obviously on iTunes, which is the primary place to get podcasts. Uh, and it's, it's really easy. Just search for Tech Move and you'll find our podcast. And, you know, we'd love for you to subscribe to us and we'd love your comments. We'd love your reviews on iTunes. That would be terrific. You can also find us on Facebook, ladies and gentlemen. Just look for Tech Move Podcast. We are there. You can find us on Twitter and our address is at Tech Move Podcast. Stitcher is available to all of you to listen to Tech Move. I, I love it. I, I, I love using that thing on my mobile device. And uh, and it's easy as can be. Yeah, it's a great little app for iOS or Android devices. And so go to the, either the Google Play Store or the various other stores that are available on Android and download Stitcher and you can play it on your Android device. You don't have to have an iOS device, but you can also play it on your iOS device if you want to. I, you only, to. Say, I only say my uh, iOS device because that's what I have. So <laughs> Yeah, I've used it a bit on Android and it works well. It, that that that's great. Um, uh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a, and it's a. I think it's a very light uh, application uh, as far as uh, size goes. I think it's very. I think it's very light. Yeah, unlike the the Apple uh, Podcast app, which is very heavy. Which you and I have talked about personally. <laughs> Although they, they changed the interface a little bit. They didn't. No, in, they made they made great improvements after yeah. I think rioting occurred. <laughs> They removed the little reel-to-reel -reel recorder interface. and Which, as you know, I personally loved it. 
<laughs> I, I love that little thing. I thought that was so great looking. Yeah. I guess most people don't know what that is nowadays. Right. <laughs> exactly. What the heck are these things? Uh, okay. Hey, we, we've got a lot of things. Let's run down some of the things we're going to be talking about today. You know, Keith, you had done a fantastic video uh, for Virgin America. And, yeah, I actually uh, produced a I produced a series of videos for Virgin America Airlines. Yeah, and uh, and we're going to talk about that. Yeah, you had you had some comments about my video style. Yes, you, you challenge you challenged me on on the choices I made. I was the Roger Ebert <laughs> of the uh, of the podcast here, and uh, I was going to give you my two cents, and then uh, and then you can either take my opinion or throw it into the garbage, which I'm sure is the one you chose. So, well, it's a pretty good segment. It was actually recorded a while back in 2012, but it's it's a pretty long segment, and it uh, goes through a lot of different reasoning behind why I and, and other filmmakers make choices about a look. In a particular situation, so um, I think you'll f- find that it's a great, it's a great um, subject for for teaching certain things and learning about other things related to documentary making and making commercials as well. Yeah, right. Which which is a terrific, uh, which was a terrific discussion. Which also kind of leads into another subject we touch on on today's episode of Tech Move, and that is what is filmic. Well, actually, it's kind of part of the whole Virgin America Airlines. Uh, segment yeah. but we kind of transition into you know why or why not was that series of films for virgin america airlines filmic right or not filmic <laughs> uh you, you, you'll see in my rant and rave uh, 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 about the uh, during that segment so yeah uh so so we're going to touch on that we're also going to talk and now this is very interesting i i, I always love this subject and uh we're going to talk about how to add some camera shake to your footage. Now, right. now a lot of people are there. Well, gee whiz, why would you want to add camera shake? Uh, you, you know, I mean, you know, with with things uh, like tripods and and uh, and and other gear for stabilization out there. So, pre- why in the world would you want to add camera shape shake? We touch on that in today's episode. Yeah. So instead of the uh advice of keep your shots as steady as possible right <laughs> we're yeah. doing the opposite yeah <laughs> how to unsteady your footage right and that is to uh ride a skateboard while you are uh <laughs> while you're filming so that's one technique and i'm not sure if that segment talks about that one but yeah. you'll find out when you listen to it <laughs> so we've got all that and a lot more to talk about here on episode 11 of tech move uh, but we do want to touch on something that we're going to uh, uh, include in each and every episode now of Tech Move, and that is we're going to talk about what is in Keith's gearbox right now. Uh, so, uh, Keith, what you know, uh, tell us something new you've got in there. Do you have a you know a, a new Phillips screwdriver? Do you have a uh, you know a torque wrench? What have you got? <laughs> some gears right just random gears in my gearbox <laughs> well i just thought we would we would keep these episodes current by just uh me talking about something new that i've gotten and just talk a little bit about it so so one of the things that i've gotten recently we talked about gpu cards in yes. the last couple episodes actually quite a bit yep and but i didn't talk about in those episodes one of the newest things i've gotten in the last couple of weeks is i actually went ahead and got a 
gaming card for my GPU card, my Mac Pro. (laughs) Now, this is shocking because in some of the last episodes, you know, you're so limited as far as what you can get for the Mac Pro, you know, at at least until the new one comes out. And then you'll be totally limited. There won't be be anything. (laughs) Unless you break it open with a sledgehammer, you you really won't be able to put anything in there. But uh... now here's the thing that's kind of interesting about uh, a lot of the new GPU cards that are coming out is they actually will work in the new, uh, well, the the Mac Pros that have PCI slots, like the 2010 Mac Pros and the 2012 Mac Pros. And this is something that has been available for maybe about a year. And it was a little bit experimental at first. Like some people discovered that it was possible to put these these unapproved cards into the Mac Pros. But what what would happen is the Mac Pro would boot up in a kind of strange way. Mm-hmm. It would be kind of scary, like like it's some things are going wrong, but eventually it would boot and things would work okay. So, uh, but if you're if you're okay with that, you could in a lot in a lot of cases you can get these cards and and that are meant for PCs basically and put them into your Mac Pro. You mean it, you mean it took them this long to figure that out? <laughs> well, actually, it wasn't necessarily uh, somebody just experimenting and figuring out. It was actually uh, Apple changed some stuff to make them work. And and the card makers Nvidia changed some stuff to make them work. Oh. So it was a combination of those two things, and I think they just both said, "Well, let's just do a little bit of work to to adjust some things in the software and hardware, and we'll make them work." So that's what happened. Isn't and that kind of isn't that kind of surprising for Apple though? They they're usually never that cooperative. <laughs> I, I, really, I mean, like you know, for for them to say, oh, you know, let's uh, let's go ahead and you know, and change something so that a you know untested thing that you can get, you know, mail order, you know, and not through us, you know, we'll get that to work. That's unheard of, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure of the complete history. I didn't research exactly mm-hmm. how what led to this, but mm-hmm. somehow somehow the the combination works. You don't get this the boot up screen properly. You don't get that spinning gear thing. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there's actually a customizer. Uh, there's a couple customizers out there. The one that that I use is is probably the first person that did this commercially. So they take these PC cards, and there there's different manufacturers of these PC cards. Nvidia make, makes them, but then and I don't know if people know this, but Nvidia makes uh, GPU cards that they actually license the technology to the GPU cards to all these different companies. Oh, so, the, like, so they're the head guys then, huh? Well, they kind of license the design, mm-hmm. and they say, well, uh, PNY, you can do whatever you want with this design, or there's several other companies that, that make NVIDIA cards, um, but they're not really NVIDIA branded. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's kind of funny, huh? Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. But anyway, this guy, his name is Mac Pro Vid Cards. Or Mac Pro video cards. I think you can. That's quite. That's quite a family name we have there. (laughs) It comes from the long, long line of Mac Pro vid cards, passed from father to son. Is is that of British descent? I'm wondering. Is that? (laughs) (laughs) So he's he seems like a nice guy. Before I bought this thing, I actually emailed him a couple times back and forth, and I was recommended by some people in the forums that have Macs to actually uh, contact this guy and see what we could do. So, um, in one of my earlier podcasts that one of the concerns was power usage by these gaming cards on the Mac pro. Right. What it turned out is there's one card that falls right on the edge of the power limit for the Mac pro, but it's still a very powerful card. And that, yeah. And that's basically the one that I got. 
Oh. So I got the best, fastest card I could possibly get without having to add a lot of extra power supply stuff to my Mac. Right. You know know what, though? Okay, let's say you wanted the actual best video card, no matter what the power supply. Is it easy to change a power supply in a Mac? Mac Pro? No. It's not. You wouldn't change the power supply. You Mm -hmm. would would, uh, add a power supply module to your Mac somewhere, find find some place to put it, mm-hmm. like an extra drive bay, mm-hmm. which they make. Uh, a lot of people put them into the optical bays on the Mac. Interesting. So yeah, because usually only one of those is filled up. In my case, I've got both filled up, so that would be an issue. But uh, in, in one case, it's empty, and so the power supply goes in there, and then there's actually the the power leads for these 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 high-end gaming cards are you're able to plug into that power supply Mm, mm. you have to figure out a way to lead out an ac cord outside your mac oh (laughs) so it actually requires some even even more external uh stuff yeah it just it's just basically you have to drill to the back (laughs) yeah a little drilling not so bad some people have even gone to the trouble of actually soldering something inside the mac to the just where the ac leads come in Mm. they've taken their mac apart a little and done some soldering i don't i don't think i want to do that so. I'm actually surprised by that. I would think that you'd want to. <laughs> My Mac's still under warranty, so oh, I don't really want to do that. Right, exactly. I'd rather not do any soldering. <laughs> but uh... well, well, then, okay. So you bought the best one that you could without having to do a lot of modification on the inside. Yeah, uh, without any modification. Really. None at all. So, yeah. uh, what did you end up getting? Um, I wound up getting the NVIDIA GTX 770. I I almost got this card from Amazon and was going to just put up with a boot screen thing and it would have been maybe a couple hundred dollars less. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. but I just went, you know what? This guy's going to support what he does and I don't want to have to deal with this weird screen so things don't happen. Mm-hmm. So the actual card that I got is made by this company named Gigabyte. And it's funny because there's a bunch of different GTX 770 cards, but um, Gigabyte was the one that this guy decided to use. And the Gigabyte one comes with this air cooler system on it called the Wind Force. <laughs> well, I'm looking at a picture of it, and it looks like it has three fans on the darn thing. It's got three big fans on it. Yeah. I mean, and it's got... <laughs> how how big are those fans? Are those like uh, like two inches or something like that? Or I think they're, th- I think they're three inches. Wow. They go across the whole, the whole length of the it car. It fits in the case. It must, yeah. it must touch the back. <laughs> well, the card's... Thicker than normal, but luckily in the Mac Pro case, they allow for the thicker card. Oh, okay. So it's, it doesn't get in the way of any of the other cards. It barely fits, mm-hmm. but it doesn't actually bump into the next card in, in the Mac. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and, and I was thought that maybe it was going to be really noisy. And I asked him, I asked this guy, the guy is on eBay is Mac Vid Cards. That's his store name. Right. And he's he sold a lot of them. He, has, he sold like 4,000 cards. So Wow. He's doing pretty well. Yeah, that's pretty good. He probably makes a couple hundred dollars on each card, but I think it's worth it because you get his support, and if things go wrong, or if you just need um, questions answered, it's. I think. I think I. I would personally rather go with somebody like that rather than jury rigging it myself. Right. I. I kind of made that decision not to do that and just say, well, I could have gotten for like four fifty on Amazon the same card and and figured out how to you know, deal with the initial screens and things, but I, I just rather get one that's more like a Mac. Mostly what he does is he actually replaces or flashes one of the um one of the chips on this card 
so that it's more Mac-like. And that's basically it. So you mean, you're, you're telling me that this particular card that, that you purchased from, uh, what's his name, Mac Vid Cards, mm-hmm. uh, you, you installed it in the Mac Pro, uh-huh. and it boots up like normal. It's just like any other Mac-supported N- NVIDIA card. Like, no you didn't, like you didn't change a thing. I didn't have to do anything. The only thing I had to do is to use both of the power ports on the Mac, along with a little adapter that he, su- he supplies. Right. Right. Uh, that converts a six pin to eight pin, which is this, this card actually requires one six pin and one eight pin mm-hmm. because it's, uh, it requires a lot of power. Hmm. Okay. So yeah. And it's, it's, it's a pretty cool card. It's got the three fans on it and it's also got this, this pipe air pipe cooling system in it. Hmm. So you can kind of, if you look at the picture, we'll put a picture on the, on the, our website, techmoopodcast.com. Yeah. There's, you can see through the fans, there's some copper stuff, yeah. copper tubes. Yep. That's the copper cooling system. It really looks great. I mean, it, it really looks like, but, you know, like you were about to tell us, it looks like it could make a lot of noise. It's, it looks like it could, and I asked the guy if it did, and he said maybe slightly more. And, and he was right. It makes a slight more noise, but mm-hmm. under no load, like just normal operation, I can't really tell the difference. I okay. think it makes more noise when it's really being pushed, okay. which I haven't really done yet. Okay. But but this card is basically twice as powerful as the Quadro 4000, which is what I had before. Right. Oh, so, so, it's, so this is even more powerful than that. Yeah, the Quadro 4000 is the one that's designed for the Mac. They made it very Mac compatible. Right. It's about the same price as this, actually a little bit more than this, but it's actually half the computing power of this card. And, so. and, and okay, so, you know, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm just so excited to hear about it. Performance. Give me your, uh, g- give me your feeling on, on performance of this beast. <laughs> You know, jury's out on the performance okay. so far. Okay. Um, I, I, I sense it's a bit faster. Uh-huh. Since I got it, I haven't done any super challenging rendering projects or just real-time playback. Okay. Uh, I haven't noticed necessarily the real-time playback is super speedy, much speedier mm-hmm. than before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't done enough to really evaluate it. I guess it's um, kind of hard because, like, if you have the Quadro, right, like, like you did before, you know, and, you know, that was probably pretty decent i mean you know it's it's the thing that was you know going without going this particular route and uh you know so as far as you know everyday type of usage probably you can't tell but until you start like you said doing some real rendering doing some real projects that's when you're really going to see this difference here at least you hope so (laughs) at least i hope so right i'm I'm hoping that something's going to be better about this so we'll see. Yeah. Well, I, I I think it looks really, really great. And and the big deal, again, is that it, it allows your Mac to operate like normal. Yep. It's just totally seamless. I don't notice any change. Cool. I don't notice any lack of stability or anything. It has The Mac hasn't crashed or locked up or anything any more than usual. <laughs> what, what, was it noticeably bigger than the Quadro? Oh yeah, it's like three times as thick. Really? Wow. Yeah, the wow. the quadro card's actually pretty thin. It okay. only takes up a single width slot, less uh-huh. than that. Okay. Even. I think they purposely made it kind of thin mm. to make sure that it would fit in most Macs if they were all filled up, or if you wanted to put another card in, right. you could kind of put two together. So, uh, but this one, no, you you're definitely using up that full full width, dual width slot, and maybe a little bit more. Are you? Uh... Did you rearrange the inside of the Mac Pro to uh, even allow 
more space above or below the the fans uh you know just so it could have that really nice airflow no actually the card that's right above it i have to keep it where it is the card <laughs> actually here's another thing that i did and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about this in another episode is i i got a pci based ssd oh. um, a while back oh. yeah mm-hmm. and so instead of going at um 3g uh instead of going at uh a certain speed like three gigabytes a second mm-hmm. um or three three gigabits a second uh it actually goes the full bandwidth of the pci bus of Ooh. a 4x pci bus which is a lot faster it's like three times four times as fast but i can talk about that in another episode but anyway that card is that that ssd pci card is in the next slot up okay slot slot two i guess and mm-hmm. that's right right up against the the wind force so you're gonna have to uh really uh uh j- just hope that these three fans are are gonna do its job and that'll be good enough i'm I'm hoping that the fans will actually help the cooling because i figure they're going to be drawing more air from mm. right above right above where they are right and that'll actually probably cool whatever is above it as well you see what i mean yeah so it's just actually drawing more air through that whole system yeah so i, I think having all those fans is actually really good for yeah. the inside of my computer yeah that's great <laughs> Anyway, well, you know what it could do too is, uh, you know, like what we talked about in a in a segment before is, uh, you know, this this could increase your buildup of dust, so uh, completely <laughs> rendering your system uh, useless because yeah, I could those do that. fans just draw, it looks like they could draw in like like crazy a lot of dust. Yeah. yeah. Well, another thing is I could probably if I if I needed a, a spare mode of transportation and I needed a hovercraft, I could probably <laughs> use it for that too. You could take out the GPU card and <laughs> and put your GoPro on it and get those aerial shots that you were dying to do with it instead of that crazy <laughs> helicopter thing you've got. So I think you got something, Rod. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you're done, hey, pop a PCI slot right back in there, and then we we, we get video. <laughs> we should we should uh, tell Mister Mac Vidcards right. about that new he, use. For he's his going cards. about it all wrong, that guy. <laughs> No, <laughs> that, that's great. Well, that is the uh, NVIDIA GTX 770 from our friend. Uh, what the heck is his name again? Mr. <laughs> Mac Vid, yeah. Mr. Mac Vidcards. Mr. Mac Vidcards. Uh. <laughs> I want to talk about one more thing. Sure. In my, It's not really in my gearbox, although I, I guess you could consider it gear. But well, you know what? Software. Put it in there so we don't get sued for anything. <laughs> Put it in there right now. Um, so last episode, I talked a little bit about my my Adobe Premiere Pro CC experience. Yes. Um, and I, I said they fixed a bug, a really major multicam bug. But actually, since then, I found another major bug. Well, time out now. <laughs> hang on, hang on. Let's for for our listening audience. Let let's review real quickly. Keith had found a bug with the uh with Adobe CC. Uh, where a multi-cam project was not able to save correctly was that was that the case something like that yeah when you when you saved it it would just mess up your multi-cam right edit. and uh everyone complained about it they put out a patch and uh at the time of uh, our last discussion of it it seemed like it had worked yeah is that, that still the same that still works okay so that's, that's good not... you've just discovered something new 
Yeah, I just discovered something new. So there's, so in Adobe uh, Premiere Pro, it works in conjunction with this thing called Adobe Media Encoder. Yes. And it's it's similar to Compressor in the in the Final Cut world. There's another there's Final Cut Pro, and then there's another app called Compressor, which does a lot of different compression tasks. But it's a separate application, so you can have that going while you're st still using Final Cut Pro. Well, it's kind of the same thing with Adobe. They have this Adobe Premiere Pro, which is your editing app, and you can export directly from Adobe, but it ties up your editing app. So if you want to be editing, but also be encoding one of your projects at the same time, you can export it and queue it into this thing called Adobe Media Encoder, which is actually a really good app. It's basically just a queue of all these jobs with different settings and coding and, and how you want your out output to be. Uh, it's like a bunch of, of little Premiere Pro exports running for in a, in a sequentially. So you can have one job, then another job, then another job, and it just could go on forever. And it's really fast. It's I think it's maybe a little bit faster than doing it through Premiere Pro. But anyway, I was noticing that when I was uh, exporting sequences using Adobe Media Encoder, I would find that a track was muted. You know, I'd have multiple tracks, and I'd find, well, that I didn't mute that track. That track was actually playing when I was playing my sequence. Why is it muted now? And then I'd go back to my Premiere Pro project, and I'd notice it was muted. Hmm. So I thought I was going nuts. And why why am why am is this track being muted when I didn't really want to mute it? So, uh. I reported the problem on a couple different forums and and found some other people that have reported the same problem. Mm. And apparently, yeah, and apparently what happens is when you go through Media Encoder, somehow it interacts with Premiere Pro and actually winds up randomly muting some tracks sometimes. So, yeah, <laughs> muting the audio in some tracks. So it's really bad because you could do this whole edit, export it, and then send it to your client and they're going, why is that track muted? Right. You know, where's the sound? Exactly. <laughs> I can't hear any. It's only coming out of the left. <laughs> yeah, the left or this person's voice isn't there. Or right. What's, you know, which is bad. Yeah, I'd say. Because a lot of times you don't really have the time to, to listen back. You, you play it through your sequence and you export it and you expect it to be exactly what right. you produced. Right. You don't have to, you don't expect to have to play it back and listen to it. In fact, it actually happened with one of our podcasts. Oh, really? editing it. Yeah, it did. It happened with the last with episode ten. I I exported it and it's like, where's Rodney? It's just me. <laughs> Are you sure I wasn't sleeping or something like that? <laughs> During that episode, you were awake. Oh, thank you. During that particular thank segment, you. I remember that. Thank you. But uh, wow, yeah, wow, so, that 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 can be very very disheartening. Yeah, so it basically makes using this media Adobe Media Encoder useless. So that that program, you might as well just like throw it in the garbage, <laughs> not even use it. <laughs> what I have found is that if you just export directly from Premiere Pro, then it doesn't seem to have that problem. Oh. So, but a lot of people are really hot on the, on the forums about this particular issue. Well, so it's yeah. just one more bug. Yeah. And it seems like, where's the quality control? That, that's, that was going to be my comment. I'm saying, are they not running it through anybody that, uh, who, who uses the stuff on a regular basis? Yeah. It's really hard for me to believe that these two major bugs got through. Right. So, uh, but hopefully they're going to they're gonna fix it. But for now, I'm, not, I'm just not going to be using the media encoder. I have to just export stuff if I want to make sure that it's, or listen to it back later and then have the chance of it you know, being bad and have to redo it. You know so. how you know how you uh, had the uh, uh, the multicam uh, bug, right? Uh, you and others had posted it to Adobe. Is that correct? Right. 
And they have ha- their own and- forums, which actually super is is monitored by their people. And have you done the same thing with this new bug? Yes. Okay. Yes. There actually was an existing thread that somebody else had started, mm. and and I just added to it, and then I also and but the thread was kind of specific, like only certain conditions would make it happen, and I just no, I said no, it actually is happening all the time in these situations as well. And then other other people are saying, yeah, you're right. I thought I was crazy. It's happening here too. So at the and there one of the posts is. Some really upset person said, "Adobe, you, you've lost my business. Tomorrow, I'm getting a refund. This is ridiculous. <laughs> I'm not at that point yet, right? But <laughs> right. Hopefully, they'll fix it." Yeah, I mean that that is well. Uh, Adobe, you are on notice by everyone here at Tech Move. Uh, but but Adobe, a... if you want to sponsor our podcast, we can actually <laughs> delete this last part of our recording. Exactly. So oh, and by the... the way, Encoder works fantastic. <laughs> We'll just erase whatever la, I uploaded. La, 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 la. We <laughs> love encoder. All right. Well, anyway. <laughs> well, I hope that uh, you know they 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 send out some sort of patch or 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 correct the problem or give you a lollipop or something like that because uh, I mean that that that's a that's kind of a weird thing. Yeah, I, just I mean they're not interworking with when it with uh, their own stuff. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just one is fixed. So anyway, so that's it for the the recent updates. <laughs> well, exciting! That's exciting stuff. Well, that's going to do it for our recent events portion of our uh, little podcast here. So stay tuned. We've got a lot more coming up right here on Tech Move. Another exciting moment here at Tech Move is where we get to talk to Keith about this fantastic new project that he got involved with. Uh, it's with Virgin America. And uh, actually, Keith, before you begin, let me give you a little bit of a plug. You can check out Keith's work. It's on YouTube. Uh, just do a search for it. It's, uh, the title of the thing is called Virgin America Brings Change to D.C., and uh, and I've actually looked at it, and uh, I'll give you my comments uh, right after that. But Keith, congratulations on this fantastic uh, project that you got involved with, and and the people involved uh, within it. Thanks. Yeah, it was a really exciting project, and uh, you know, just like pretty much any um, any job or any new client, uh, just contacts, just word of mouth. Um, a person that they knew knew me, and highly recommended me, and. And when they called me, I jumped on the chance to work with them. Well, just, of course. I mean, it's a it's a big name. It's a great uh, great gig. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, and the thing with that is, with such a big client, you want to just you know make the most of it. You want to um, do pretty much you know jump and respond really quickly and just try to do everything as best as possible. And then later, once they're locked into you, then you could just kind of slack off and do whatever you want. <laughs> But you have to get to that point. <laughs> right. No, not right. really. Not right. really. I mean, I always try to do a good job with, with all my all my clients. But but thank you very much. It was it was great and it's 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 also a really good company. I really I had never actually flown Virgin America before. And they're actually based out of San Francisco. So it's really convenient and it's actually 
um, since they're based out of San Francisco, their headquarters is really close. It's in Burlingame, and their center is at the San Francisco airport. So all the stuff is like 10 to 15 minutes away from me. So it's also really convenient. That's very good. Yeah. So, um, so it, it all worked out really well. You know, like, like when I had to do shoots at the airport, I only did, I mean, I had to get up really early, but I didn't have to get up an hour extra early to, to get there. So the things like that made it really easy. So there were several uh, events that I shot, and one of the events was this uh, inaugural flight. Uh, they're actually opening up a new route between San Francisco and Washington, D.C. A new nonstop flight, is that correct? Yep, it's a new nonstop flight, and it and they actually have another uh, flight to an airport that's close to Washington, D.C., but this was actually kind of special because it was actually a flight to the kind of exclusive airport that's inside the capital. It's a pretty small airport, and so you kind of have to win a lottery to even be an airline that's in the airport because there's not that much space in it for new airlines. So that was just kind of a coup for them. They were one of, I think, two other two airlines that just recently got the ability to fly into there. So it was a really big deal for them. And then they decided to, to also kind of play up the whole Washington, D.C. political aspect of it. Since it's an election year, they hired these lookalikes for Obama and, and Mitt Romney. Those were along on the flight doing their shtick, you know, jokes about themselves and, and the political aspects. I, and then you, it, you know, I, I, I did see that, and I'll, I'll uh, uh, tell you that I thought the uh, Obama uh, uh, impersonator looked pretty, he looked really good. He looked really, he looked, really good. The Mitt one, I, I don't know. I, 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 I thought he was a cross between uh, Mitt Romney and uh, Ronald Reagan. So uh, <laughs> I wasn't, wasn't quite sure. But none, nonetheless, it was very effective and it was cute. Yeah. The, the Mitt guy didn't look a lot like Mitt. Yeah. And actually, he had a huge amount of makeup and like a mask on almost. Like, yeah. Really, he had prosthetics and stuff on his face and it, it was actually really bugging him. It 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 did it did look like it. I mean, like it yeah. it looked like a <laughs> like I don't know. Uh, yeah, it looked fake. It yeah, looked fake. It did it did. Um, he was actually a pretty funny comedian. I don't I don't actually remember his name. Um, it's I have it here. The, the one and only Jim Gossett. Oh yeah, Jim Gossett. Jim yeah. Gossett and Reggie Brown. Reggie Brown uh, playing think... Mitt and Brock, respectively. Yeah, I think Reggie Brown is actually really famous for looking so much like Barack Obama. It's it was uncanny. It was always like he was there. It yeah. was kind of I, I was kind of intimidated because I didn't like really want to go up to him and you know interview him and have him make jokes because it was almost like like uh, disrespectful. <laughs> it would have been great if you could have like sicked some uh, pseudo secret service agents on you and like taken away the camera and destroyed <laughs> oh, it. That, that been, actually that would have been really funny. They should have hired some secret service agents. They should that, have would have been, that would have been funny. I should suggest that next time. A la the Godfather, you know, rip the camera out of your hand and just throw it on the ground and then ha have him throw like $2 at you or something like that. That would have been fantastic. Yeah, except I don't really need any help to throw my cameras on the ground. <laughs> you accomplish that quite well on your own. I do that all the time. Excellent. Yeah, as, as my rigs fail and things break. And... <laughs> oh, yeah. Just kind of an aside, so one of the other events was um, filming the Virgin America Day in AT&T Park, which is the Giants, the San Francisco Giants ballpark. Right. So I was on the field, and it's really strict security on the field. You basically get in, the media gets in, does their thing, and then has to get out even before the players get on the field. 
So I was on the field when they were kind of preparing the field, like spraying water on it to wet down the dirt, which was really convenient because it was like spraying right into my all my equipment. <laughs> the, the, and you the didn't mist. have the garbage sacks over your equipment to protect I was, it? I was, it was like a perfect day, uh, so I wasn't expecting rain. Right. But uh, it was actually fine. I just kind of turned the... I, it was mostly just kind of a mist, but it was getting all the, the, the lenses all fogged up. Sure. I just turned the cameras away. But the, like the very first thing that happened was that my rig kind of uh, kind of got loose, and then one of my cameras just like fell on the ground into the dirt, the lens like face first into this kind of really kind of sandy dirt that they use all over the field. It's like this special red dirt. I think it's it's like a low dust type of thing that they use in baseball fields, like red. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a special infield type of uh, dirt. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it's just kind of gritty, and like you wouldn't want to like wipe your lens off with this stuff on your lens. <laughs> you could scratch it up. So that was like the first thing that happened. So did you so, bring like a bunch of compressed air to like blow that stuff out in case? I don't use compressed air too much nowadays, and I'll, there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of tends to spray out liquid. Yes, on occasion. It does. Yes, and that it makes it even worse. Mm. So uh, I used to use them, but then after ha- having several incidents where it just would spew out liquid, uh, I just stopped using it. Now I use this thing called a, it's basically an air bulb, but it's, um, it's actually looks like a rocket. Mm, okay. It actually can uh, compress the air really, it's pretty forceful. And uh, so I used that instead, and I, but I didn't even have time to use that. I mean, this was just like happening so quick. So I just took that camera like encrusted with dirt and put it to the side and then used some other cameras in the meantime, and then uh, decided to clean it up later. I didn't want to take any time cleaning it. I just wanted to keep shooting because it was, it was happening really fast. I had to, I had several things to shoot on the field right at that time. And the Virgin America people were like, okay, now do, you know, this is something you want to record and this is something you want to record. But then after that, they didn't really supervise me. They just kind of told me what to do and left it up to me to get the good shots. So, uh, like, they'd introduce me to the people and then that was it. It was up to me to interview them or whatever. Anyway, so that's one of my instances of dropping my camera on the field, but I still got some good shots. And it was a small little camera that wasn't that important. So, uh, but anyway, getting back to this particular um, shoot, the one that we're talking about, the video that's out there, uh, you actually had some observances when you, you, like your first comment to me was was a certain comment, and then I responded, and and then we thought maybe it would be a good idea to talk about this concept of of your initial comment to me and talk about it. Right. Uh, you, you know what? I, I, I thought it was a, a really great capture of the day, which is, I know that's what they're kind of looking for and, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, my only, I, I guess if you want to say critique of the video was that it didn't seem as filmatic as say your other films that I've seen from you. Uh, specifically like the artists sharing uh, film that you've got out there. Yeah. Uh, some of the, you know, a lot of the clips, which are great. I mean, the, the, I, I'm, I'm watching it right now as we talk, and a lot, some of it like within the plane, kind of low light, kind of just available light with whatever you've got, and, you know, getting some, uh, uh, you know, screen reflection from, you know, from their, uh, you know, in-seat monitors that, that you're trying to take, uh, you know, uh, and, and I can appreciate having to just take it literally run and gun. You take anything that you can, you start, you know, you just let it go. It just, and, and I can appreciate now 
how when you can set up a shot and have all that time to do so, how it can really look much more filmatic uh, than, uh, you know, than, than what you were able to maybe set up for for this particular version of America's shot. Yeah, uh, it's, well, I think your main, your main point is it's not as filmic as, and I think we're going to use the word filmic, even though there's probably many different ways to say it, filmatic, filmic, okay. so I'm just going to say filmic. Okay. Uh, just a, a generic term, and and this is something that's gone on for, well, really since the beginning of video. Right. Like, how do you make video look more like film? And we've been trying to do it for years, and I don't think we've ever quite gotten there, but we're getting closer, and we're getting closer with more consumer, more accessible equipment. Probably the most filmic camera that's out there right now, camcorder that's out there right now, is probably the Ari Alexa. Um, that's a really expensive camera. I think it's a couple hundred thousand. I'd never even heard of that. Yeah. So the Ari Alexa is, it came out about a year ago, maybe a little longer prototypes, but, uh, so you've heard of the red, right? Yep. Yeah. So the Ari Alexa is kind of the answer to the red because everybody was starting to switch over to the red because the red was the first camera that could, that even approached this, this high end filmic quality in a video camera. And, um. And it still is very popular, but there's this competition now. Um, so Ari is actually a really famous um, camera maker and lighting maker. You might have heard of Ari Lights. They make a lot of lights. They also ma- used to make a lot of film cameras, film uh, motion picture cameras, like uh, really good handheld cameras and, and, and just a bunch. And so they they just went, went about this project to make the best, most filmic uh, video camera out there. And, uh, and, and in my opinion, they succeeded. There's some films out there that you cannot tell they weren't done on, on film and that are filmed by the Ari Alexa. Uh, unfortunately, it's a really expensive camera, and then there's the workflow issues with it. And it's not that small. It's pretty big. So it's not for everybody. It's more like for a film set. Yeah, I'm, looking, like I'm a, looking at right now very, very uh, almost like a broadcast TV type of size camera, it looks like. Right. And you really can't get it that small. Uh, it's got a certain limit to how small you can get it. It's basically that back part's pretty big. Yeah. And then the lenses make it even bigger. Sure. The red, like the red Epic, um, is another kind of com- competing camera. Uh, that that actually is small, much smaller in size. Uh, but you, then you have to add a lot of extra stuff to it to make it actually work, just like kind of like a DSLR. But anyway, getting back to this whole filmic thing. So the RELX is probably the premier um, motion picture camera right now. Like if I was a big director, and I wanted to get the best look, I choose an Ari Alexa. Even even over the red. Yeah, I choose it over the red. If that's what my goal is to get a filmic uh, quality, that mm-hmm. it actually has more filmic quality than I think the red does. The red, if you light it well and you do other things, just like any camera, can look really good. But it's still got that little bit of video ishness. That if you're really attuned to what's film versus video, that's that's what it it does. And Ari really in my opinion, kind of hit the jackpot. And they did it willfully. They just said, we're going to come out with a, a video camera that looks like film because film is dead. I mean, this, it's, it's, so, it's so amazing how fast film died in motion pictures. Uh, yeah, Like really. even a year ago, a lot of, most, most films were done on film. And now film isn't even being made. There's like one manufacturer of film now. And there's no motion picture cameras, film motion picture cameras being made anymore. Not one. They're not, make, they're not manufacturing them anymore. 
you know, there's still a few, there are still a lot of them used, but, uh, and they're using, you know, either stock that's built up or special stock from Fuji. But, but basically film is dead and it happened in like a year. Yeah. Um, you know, the thing that happened with digital point and shoots, you know, like about 10 years ago, it was probably a mixture of digital versus film point and shoot cameras. And now you can't get, you really can't get a film camera. It's not even, film's not even made. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. You, so, you, you really have to search out for film. Yeah. You really have to search out for film. And I think it happened a lot faster in, in video, film versus video. But anyway, Ari went out of their way to really make this filmic um, camera. And, and the thing, they just analyzed what, what makes film what it is, what makes film look the way it is. And, you know, film has a certain amount of um, forgiveness in the, the treatment of highlights. Like if you go from, from dark to light, the, the, uh, the way that um, that contrast is shown in film is very pleasing. And it's got a very, a very kind of even, soft graduation between the two. And where the edges are, where it, where it, where it transitions between light and dark, is very, um, very pleasing. It's kind of like softened and, and more evened out. Video, bad video, or, or kind of old-style video, on the other hand, you can really tell the tr distinctions between the edges of something that's dark and something that's light. And that's that's probably in my opinion one of the the primary differences between video and film is how how is the transition between uh shadow to highlight and how are the how do the edges look and if you look on vid video you can and you look and you zoom in closely if you're pixel peeping to coin a term that we've used before <laughs> right which i love one of my yeah. favorites <laughs> um so if you're a pixel peeper you can zoom in to like a blown up frame of video and you can look at the edges of something and you'll notice that the edge has almost like a border around, like say somebody's head, and then they're against a white, lighter background. Well, that border where their hair ends and the background begins, you might see like a line, almost like a line that's tracing them. Or you'll see like a little halo around them that's just kind of sharp. Uh, or you might see a little, a little edge that has a certain amount of color to it that's, that's not really p part of the actual scene. So that's, that's what video does. Video doesn't have a very good, uh, unless you have a really high-end sensor, just the typical video camera. This, the way the sensor works, it just can't display that transition very well. Uh, and then you add on any kind of compression and other stuff, and it just magnifies those problems. So just from the, you know, like the differences between film as a capture medium and a sensor as a capture medium, that's a big difference. It, how, how, does it, how does it handle the transitions between dark and light? And film does it in a very pleasing way, and video can do it in a in a pretty sharp, uh, unpleasing, kind of ugly way. So that's a big that's a big deal. Um, and then there's other issues such as just the resolution. Um, film tends to be can be kind of soft, um, you know, like 16 millimeter film that when you blow it up, it's a little bit soft. Uh, but by soft, I mean it's just it's just kind of fuzzy. It's just blurry, right. but but it's not so blurry that that you think that it's blurry. It's just that there's some detail is is not there, but it still looks pretty good. And um, and uh, with video, sometimes video is almost too sharp. Uh, like when you buy a consumer camcorder and you and you just use the default settings or the like the automatic settings, the sharpness is up and 
all that stuff, just the fact that the sharpness is up and the, and the contrast is up and the saturation is up makes it look like video. <laughs> right. Like more real than real. And uh, that more real than real isn't really filmic. It's like the opposite of filmic. Right. You, you, you know, l- l- let me uh, l- let me be very clear. I, I, I thought your video was really, really good. Uh, I just wanted to just say that the, you know, oh, 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 let's get a little specifics. You shot, you shot this particular one with what the FS seven hundred? Uh, no, this was before I had the FS seven hundred. I actually shot it with the FS one hundred. Okay, so this was taken with the FS one hundred, and your artist sharing. I know that was a combination of different cameras there because that 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 was a much bigger project and all this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh but uh uh what was your primary uh rig on that one? Artist sharing. I did the interviews using the Sony EX1. And then I did most of the live action with a combination of various Canon DSLRs like 7D, 5D Mark II and the 1D Mark IV. Yeah. And you know what? I, I, I think you and I had kind of talked offline about it and uh and you said that uh that the FS one hundred and maybe even the seven hundred uh you know will I guess will have that kind of different feel to it than the you know other can than the DSLR stuff. So the thing about the Canon DSLRs is the fact that it looks filmic is kind of an accident (laughs) (laughs) but it's it's a nice accident to have though because it it looks great it's a nice accident and it's just there's a few factors going on you know one is that their sensor just has a certain look to it and it's not something you can necessarily pin down with with scientific explanations but uh it just kind of looks filmic out of the box Mm -hmm. Uh, and then if you tune it and do and do a little bit more with the picture profiles and you choose certain lenses and it can look look even more filmic so mm-hmm. it's kind of an easy way to get that filmic look and that that's really neat the fact that it can do that um whereas the fs100 i think it's probably lesser so for the 700 but the fs100 definitely is more video-ish looking mm-hmm. uh potentially than the canon dslrs and there's there's a few reasons for it one is is that it's just higher resolution uh, it's actually the resolution of Canon DSLRs is pretty low. Like if you look at it on a resolution chart, if you aim it at a, a chart with little lines on it that can uh, show you how, how much the resolving power is of the camera, mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty low. It's like almost like SD level. It's not even like HD level. Mm-hmm. Even though it puts out a 1080p uh, signal, uh, it actually is much lower in resolution than that. So that's one thing. And that kind of emulates that so- softness of film. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just the way that the FS100 handles highlights versus the, um, the Canon DSLRs. But actually also, uh, in this particular case, I was using, because it was a very run and gun, unpredictable situation with all the Virgin America shoots, I got the barest of explanation about what I was getting into, you know, just like a little bullet list of what, but I didn't know really what the setting would be, how crazy it would be. And it was pretty crazy all the time. So I just made a decision before I even uh went in there that I was primarily going to use the the kit lens with the Sony FS100. Right. 
the kit lens is a it's a nice lens it's um it's not a it's a zoom lens but it's not it doesn't have a rock uh, like a servo zoom so you have to zoom it by by hand mm -hmm. by just twisting it and it's basically a still camera lens that has built-in image stabilization that you can turn on and off and then it interacts with the fs100 and you can get even better image stabilization out of it so the kit lens is 18 to 200 millimeters so it's a pretty good range that's a very good range yeah and 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 that's that's another thing you have to consider is that are you going to have even time to change lenses you know when you're when you, things are crazy and 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 you really need to capture something or do you just want one lens that you can maybe capture everything mm. uh, 18 is pretty wide and 200 is pretty telephoto so it's a pretty good range but it's just a small little kind of throwaway lens <laughs> yeah and for its size and everything it's got really good performance but it's not you know it's like a five six hundred dollar lens you know i've got lenses that are like three thousand dollars that i put on canon dslrs the glass is just that so much better on those lenses mm. but they don't have the versatility of this lens so it's it's always this trade-off you know you're going to put on a, a lens that's maybe better and sharper but reduce your ability to actually capture the shot because you can't focus it quick enough or or you can't zoom in or zoom out uh because the lens doesn't have that range or you know or do you just uh think you're going to be in a situation that's controlled enough where you will have a chance to move away or get closer as well as uh, maybe change lenses if you need to so i just had to make that decision and you know what am i going to do right so I know I brought some other extra lenses just in case I had the time, but I really didn't have the time to change them in most cases. Yeah, I think that judging by what you were able to take, it's pretty obvious that, you know, you were just thrown into, you know, this room and then you're just waiting for things to happen and, yeah. and you know, things just happen and stuff like that. I think that what, uh, you know, again, what I saw and, and that was a, a really great explanation because that's really what I saw. I saw essentially a great video and which looked kind of like video, you know, yeah. really high quality video. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I guess in my mind, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking everything that you shoot, everything that I'm going to shoot is going to be as filmatic, filmic as possible. You know what I mean? Right. And, and there's just different creativity things that, that are there that you can just mess around with. You know, and, and the thing too is it's just, it's all, everything kind of a learning process. Yeah. So in that particular video, there are, I think there are some f shots that are more filmic than other shots. Yep. There's probably sure notice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, so the ones that are where there's a lot of frenetic action going on, those were done with, uh, with the kit lens, the 18 to 200 millimeter Sony kit lens. Um, but when I was on the plane, I actually brought several other lenses, including some really nice prime lenses. The flight was six hours long. I had a chance to change lenses and plan for... There's a lot of dead time that I could do the artistic shots. Right. <laughs> then is when I put the prime lenses on and, and tried to get some nice uh, shallow depth of field shots and, and things like that. And uh, so you probably notice that a few shots are more filmic than other shots. And that's one of the reasons is that better lenses, a little bit more time to set up and, and review the lighting and, and other stuff. Not that I really had any artificial lighting. That was another thing that I that I didn't didn't want to use because it looks awful when you if you don't do it right. Right. When I had time to set up using a prime lens and and set up setting it all up, then I was able to get the filmic shot. Uh but I wouldn't have trusted to be in focus, etc. in a run and gun situation with those lenses. 
it's really hard to do run and gun with a super wide open lens uh, in any situation. Even if you have really good focusing tools, in which I do, I have a really good Zakudo Z Finder, which has peaking and uh, other stuff to really help focusing. Right. But but even with that, uh, you can t it still takes too long to focus before you actually get it on, and then the moment is gone. <laughs> so uh, so you can't really use the shallow depth of field in that situation unless you want run the risk of being out of focus. I've so, I've learned that very uh very well on my own vacation videos where you know here's this great thing and you know try to do this depth of field type of thing and it just looks lousy. <laughs> yeah. Because you're just yeah. out of it. So Yeah. So my very first uh DSLR was uh a 7D and uh it was the first one that actually could do this kind of filmic thing could and could take reasonable video. It was the first camera ever pretty much to do that. The yeah. 5D could do it, but it was actually kind of crippled. It was more crippled than the 7D, even though the 5D is a better camera. Uh, it was probably like, what, the 5D Mark I or something like that? Uh, the five, No, this is the... Uh, so the 5D Mark II actually came out like four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but up in, even, even when the 7D was out, it didn't even have 24P. And it did not have any kind of way to control the exposure mm, mm -hmm. other than uh, automatic and some other things. Uh, so it was actually really, really hard to use it for uh, video. You could do it, but it was a pain. Uh, whereas the 70 was more of a, the video functionality was a little bit better, a little bit more usable. The first few shots I did with the 70, I went, this is crap. This, this looks like crap. <laughs> really? <laughs> Yeah, I looked really? at him. It's this is how do people get these images out of this? Uh -huh. Because just pointing and she's like, it's out of focus. It looks ugly. Why? Why is what's so good about this camera? <laughs> so nice. So part of it was that I got it with the kit lens that came with it, which is not the best lens. Mm. When I started getting better glass and then learned to use it a little bit better and learn how to actually focus, <laughs> right? Uh, which is really tough, as you know, but it's still really challenging to use in a lot of ways. One of the big challenges is getting good audio, and that's that's continues to be a challenge with the DSLRs. Okay, so then a big question then is, uh, why even bother using a Sony camera if you're getting this great, uh, you know, filmic look using DSLRs, and you know you've already you've already uh, gone through the learning curve. You're pretty experienced at how to use it and stuff like that. Why switch to another camera then? That's a good question, Rodney. And great response from Cello. <laughs> Cello, Cello, what do you up. think? What do you, what do you think about the filmic look? Was it was it good Ch enough? Cello's telling me to just stick with the DSLRs. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's her opinion, right? <laughs> well, so you know, it's not something that I am a hundred percent sure that I'm making the right decision mm -hmm. because of that trade-off. But here's a couple things. With the Canon DSLRs, you're you're kind of locked into that Canon ecosystem. And with all the lenses and, and everything else. And they have good stuff, but they're not... The problem with the DSLRs, they're not really built for video. They have a lot of limitations. They're getting less limitations now as the new firmware comes out. But, but still, even like up until the 5D Mark III came out, uh, there was this 10-minute clip limit approximately 10 minutes it's basically right. a four gigabyte limit 
and which can be from 10 to 13 minutes depending on the type of uh, video you're taking right but uh that's really annoying to have to uh you know, remember to turn your camera off and on every 10 minutes. Yeah. And you, and you will tend to lose shots. Another thing is they overheat. The sensors on the, on the Canons are not meant to be taking video all the time. They're meant to be taking a still frames. The video function is kind of a, it's kind of an accident. You know, right. it, it's they, and what they do is they actually do something called line skipping where they, they skip, they skip the number of lines to make a, to make an HD image. And sometimes the way the sensor is, the lines aren't perfectly a multiple of, of HD, like 1080p resolution. So, so that's an issue with a lot of uh, DSLRs. Is there's this thing that you may have heard about called Moiré. Yep. And Don't know or, what it is, but I've heard the term. <laughs> and another thing is aliasing. Yep, heard that too. Don't know what it does. <laughs> so Moiré is basically an interaction between the the resolution of the camera, like the pixels on the camera, and uh, things that are kind of repeating patterns, like like a brick wall or like somebody's plaid or or tight tight weaved pattern on their shirt or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that interaction between the two can create a an interference pattern. Uh, and on the Canon DSLRs, it's actually really bad. So if you ever uh, took like a a brick wall and then you moved the camera a little bit up and down or you would actually see some really strange, unnatural patterning going on. And I, I've seen it before. I, I see think, it all the time. I, I think I have seen that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, the, and that's Moray. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's Moray. And then, and, and this, the aliasing, and that's kind of a product of, the, of, of a couple things. One is, is that the, there's this thing called a low-pass filter in video cameras, and it's basically just a way to reduce the amount of detail in an in image coming in. And the reason for that is that HD video is really not that high resolution compared to like a still. So a typical still camera now has about has about three times the resolution of a video of HD video. So the fact that a still camera is meant to be taking super high resolution images that are much higher resolution than video uh, adds to that issue, that problem of of moiré and aliasing. What they did with the Canon D Mark III, which is pretty cool, is they made the sensor size exactly three times the size of HD video. So when they did this uh, line skipping in order to produce the video out of it, it's an even amount of lines. So that part worked out really well. I don't know exactly what they did, but they kind of softened the image. And so that um, that kind of takes the place of that low-pass filter that's in the in most uh, camcorders. Low-pass, it's an optical low-pass filter. Essentially, it's like a little lens that adds blur mm-hmm. to, in, before the sensor. And it's just to get a little bit less detail so those that interference pattern that we see in the DSLRs doesn't occur in uh, in the on the sensor. Other issues are that when you start adding sound and other attachments to these Canon DSLRs, they're kind of they're not really made to hold a lot of stuff, different mm-hmm. kinds of stuff for run and gun. Mm-hmm. Like the only thing you can really really attach to it is the hot, something on the hot shoe, right? Like like a mic. Yep, and maybe if you have like a hot shoe splitter, you could attach a few more things. But it starts becoming kind of, kind of jury rigged, right? So it's jury rigged, and getting monitoring out from the, from the Canon DSLRs is it's it's doable, but it's also kind of jury rigged. You know, you have to have these ca- cables coming out at weird angles and all, and then rigging it up to use a external viewfinder, which I have all that stuff, is kind of jury rigged. So you wind up getting this, 
this kind of humongous jury rigged device that has a lot of points of potential failure. <laughs> like my camera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and you could you could make it more robust by like putting it in a cage and making sure the cables are really secure and, and things don't move. But still, you know, when you're running and gunning and you have this delicate thing with all these parts sticking out, it's it can it might become less reliable. And if reliability's like the premier issue. So so essentially the FS100 has really good audio. I still have to add stuff to it, but the build of the camera is much more conducive to adding stuff. It's just basically this box and you can well, clamp stuff onto it. And it's certainly a, a bigger form factor and you know rather than just a a camera. Right? Yeah. I mean a traditional photo camera. Right. Which is good and bad. Yeah. The smallness of the DSLRs is actually really good in some situations. Yeah. So that was my choice in getting the FS100. I wasn't 100% happy with it and still am not. I shot a, a project on it that I really like. I'm really proud of it. It's called International Orange, the Bridge Reimagined. And that was done pretty much exclusively on the FS100. And I think I got a pretty good look. I think I got a pretty filmic look out of that for the most part. Don't you think? Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that was done on the FS100. Um, but I did that mostly with better lenses. It was a slightly more controlled environment. At least I knew what I was getting into. It was going to be this classroom and not too much more. Uh, so I could afford to use the FS100 with better lenses that had shallower depth of field and get that look because I knew it wasn't going to be like having to uh, deal with something super close, something super far, and not having much time to set up. Right. So uh, that one looks better, I think, because of the lenses. Um, also, I used a picture profile on that that is uh, a kind of a gritty, more filmic, I think, picture profile. That's actually another thing uh, that I probably want to talk about, which is just the picture profiles. You don't really have that much of a choice on the Canon DSLRs. It's pretty much you get it and that's it. And then you can't really change the look that much afterwards. Um, so pretty much if you shoot something on the Canon, you're pretty much going to get that look throughout the whole process. You can't change it that much without degrading the image. And so that's a really good look, but it's always the same. So there, so there's, um, you're saying that you can't really get a filmic look in post as you really should at the initial shooting of something. Uh, you can definitely, uh, you can definitely increase the filmic look in post. It's possible to make it look more filmic. It's there's more of a way to change the image uh, in post with the FS100 than for than for the Canon. That's pretty oh. much what I'm saying. Oh, okay. So there's a term called baked in, which basically means that uh, the contrast and color and and other stuff is kind of part of the image, and that's kind of what you how you shoot it is kind of what you get on the Canon DSLRs and pretty much all the other DSLRs uh, because of how they record uh, the codec and just the uh, limitations of the sensor and how it's processed and put onto the video file. You can't really change it a whole lot or you start, it starts breaking up the image. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of resolution to play with. It doesn't have a lot of latitude. It doesn't have a lot of color range. The color range is pretty limited. The colors look great and really saturated, but if you don't like that look, well, you could desaturate it a little bit. But that's another thing with the Canon. It's not that versatile. Now, everybody loves that look, and it's kind of become the new look in the last 
few years since it's been out. Right. Uh, but but it's going to change. It's probably going to change, and people are going to get tired of it. Um, I'm not sure if I'll ever get tired of it. But that's another reason for you know maybe choosing something more like a traditional video camera than a than a DSLR. But I was just saying that I'm not. I wasn't 100% happy with the FS100 images. In fact, I did. I really didn't like the way that it handled highlights. I thought that. The, remember, I was talking in the beginning of the conversation about how you can tell video from film, and how the edges of of high contrast parts of the image look. Right. And there's a kind of a ringing, kind of an outlining that goes on. Like haloing and, type of thing. Yeah, it's kind of like haloing, but it's a very, it's it's a very narrow halo, like mm. almost like a line. Okay. Uh, you know, you ever use Photoshop or something like that? Yeah. Um, or even, even like, even on your TV, you know, when you turn up the, the sharpness on the TV Yep. and you start, it's, it looks pretty good. But then after a while it starts looking, looking really fake and everything has edges, yes. all the edges. Yeah. So that's kind of what video has just built into it. Uh, the, the, the video sensors just have that quality to them. They just don't handle that transition between light and dark all that well. Well, the FS100 has a little bit of that. Not terrible, but not great. So, for example, you could shoot something really bright and really dark on a Canon DSLR. Uh, like maybe shoot to, shoot a light bulb or something like that. Or shoot somebody with um, a really white background that has to be blown out. Like it can't, it's just too bright. Right. And it, looks, it still looks pretty good. It, the, the transition between that really bright part and the really dark part is, is good. Uh, However, with the Sony FS100, you really have to play with the picture profiles to get that to work well. Like, you almost have to do it on-site to, to tune it. You have to go into your menus and change stuff. And, and even then, it's not as good as the Canons. Just do it out of the box. And that's just the way the sensors are between the two cameras. Uh, so I was never 100% happy with the FS100. I actually just recently sold it, though. I don't know if I told you that, but I think I, you did. I think you mentioned that to me before. Yeah, I sold it. Uh, not that I didn't like it. I would continue to use it. It's a great camcorder uh, for very many reasons. And the guy that I sold it to is really happy with it. Got a really good deal. But I actually recently got an FS seven hundred, which is kind of like the big brother to the FS one hundred. So I didn't feel like I needed to the same type of camera. Right. It was. It was the. It was the new improved. Uh, FS100 was the 700, right? Yeah, new improved. A um, couple things that are really important that the FS100 doesn't have: built-in neutral density filters, mm. uh, nice. which really, yeah, and that really helps. You don't have to add something to the front of the camera to get more shallow depth of field for larger apertures. I think that the highlight handling is actually much better than the FS100. They just upped their level of highlight handling. They just made it work better, and so that part of it is much more filmic. So I think I'm actually going to be able to get an even more filmic look with the 700 than the 100. And it might even approach the Canon DSLRs. But um, honestly, though, there's other reasons that I got the FS700. So I talked a little bit about, you know, I think it has just a better image quality just out of the box. But uh, also, it's got the 4K capability. So that part has, has a lot of potential to it. Another thing that's great about it is it has this super slow-mo capability, which is comes in will come in handy in a lot of situations. Yeah, I think we talked about that uh, before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how great that is. Yeah. I still am waiting for this guy to build this custom plate for me 
um, that he promised me like a month ago. So I haven't used it a whole lot in the field, but he's he's a nice guy. He runs a video. He runs he's a videographer, but he does like machining on the side. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, his name's Olaf Edberg, and he's uh, his company's West Side AV. Mm. The slow-mo will have a lot of uses, but honestly, though, if I actually had like unlimited amount of money, I might actually consider getting like say I had say say that money was no object and I just wanted to have the most filmic look, which I still really like, right? And appreciate out of the Canon DSLRs, and I think it's superior to any of the other DC, DSLRs. I would probably get the Canon C five hundred, and mm-hmm. and the Canon C five hundred is like a thirty five thousand dollar camera. Mm-hmm. It does potentially four K. It's got it accepts Canon EOS lenses. It's got uh, good image acquisition and uh, good workflow. The images coming out of it are awesome. The, its little brother came out a while back as the C three hundred, and that that caused a big storm. And everybody loves that camera. So that that one's like, so that camera, the C three hundred, is about fifteen thousand, maybe mm-hmm. sixteen thousand, and and that camera is the sweet is a sweet spot because it's got the attributes of the Canon DSLRs as far as highlight handling, etc. But it's also got the XLR inputs for the run and gun uh, situations. It's just more of a camcorder, but with this really nice sensor and image quality. Unfortunately, that's fifteen thousand dollars. Right, know, it's, it's <laughs> twice as much as the FS seven hundred. Right. Now they're coming out with another uh, cinema camera, which is like even the little little brother of that, and that's the C one hundred. And that one's only like seven or eight k. It has a it's a much more limited camcorder, but that one actually might be the one to get. You know, if that's the one that I might be able to afford, so that might be the one that replaces my five D Mark three. You know what's interesting is, and and we've touched on this before in earlier podcasts, is the, uh, you know how it sound also sounds like a lot of this, um, can be a, a lot of this uh, filmic look and and a lot of post production stuff can be achieved using the the the, the raw uh, format, even though it'll take up just tons of of uh, of you know file space and all this kind of thing but it, 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 would I be correct in saying that that you could do you could really put in uh, any kind of look you want if it's shot in raw so raw has the potential of of uh, achieving a filmic look but but the thing about raw is it mostly gives you more ability to do stuff in post production it gives you a more uh, kind of wide open canvas in which to add whatever look you want in the post-color correction process. Uh, it doesn't necessarily inherently have a more filmic look. It's really just a way of recording. But I guess uh, you could probably put in like filters and stuff like that in that post-production to make it more filmic if you wanted to. You could potentially. But it'd but probably really, take a lot of work. Yeah, it would yeah. take a lot of work and it might look, it still might look fake. Really, that filmic look comes from the sensor. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a combination of things. It's, it, it, it's the sensor, I think, is the most important thing. But then it's also the lighting, uh, the, the treatment of the lighting. And with Canon DSLRs, you can use any lighting and it looks filmic. But you could, if you have a, a, like a set and you have good lighting, you know, a good cinematographer that knows how to set up lighting, right? Uh, you can actually get the filmic look from like pretty much any camera. 
uh, and and good example of that is this really great series that uh, that Zakudo has run. They Zakudo is this equipment manufacturer, and I have a lot of their gear. Uh, but they also come out, and you should probably, if you haven't watched them, they're excellent webisodes and web series about different aspects of filmmaking. Oh, I'll have to look at that. It's it's really excellent because the the head of Zakudo or one of the founders is was actually a documentary maker. And then he started. They started getting to this business where they were renting equipment, and then they decided to manufacture equipment. So it's a really interesting evolution. He's not just some guy that, that uh, you know, some some factory in China. He actually has a filmmaking background. So, so one of the things he loves, and it's kind of a commercial for his company, is to make these little documentaries. So there's this um, documentary called Camera Shootout that happened, I think, last year, and they they tried out all the cameras, like the some of the reds and the Canon DSLRs and some of the more expensive things like the Alexa. But then this year they had the revenge of the camera shootout. They basically had a range of cameras, including an iPhone 4S. <laughs> that was the lowest end camera. And then the highest end camera was the Ari Alexa. Okay. Go to zakuda.com and look for the revenge of the great camera shootout. But it was the same scene that each camera had to shoot. And they, uh, it was a scene of some woman walking into a, fairly darkly lit room with highlights in the room and then and then there was actually a big picture window with stuff outside that was pretty brightly lit so there's a really bright part of the scene and then a pretty dark part of the scene and it kind of progressed from the, her walking in the room and then she sits down at this somewhat lit table or a chair or something and so they just did the same scene over and over again pretty much the same acting everything was the same as far as the subject matter but they had a separate director of photography for each camera. So they they went out into the industry and invited the specialists in the different cameras. Like this one guy who was really good at iPhone 4 videos, they, they used him. And then this other guy that was really good at the GH2 videos, they used him. Mm. Um, so everybody had their kind of operator that, that knew the camera really well. And then it was the same set of lighting people, which they directed to light differently, depending on the camera. And and they played they blind tested this with an audience of really high end people, including mm -hmm. some really big name directors. Like one of them was Francis Ford Coppola. But there were several. I mean, we're talking about head heads of the industry when it comes to di digital, uh, when it comes to director photographies and even directors, like really big names. And it was a blind test where they just showed these clips, the same clip with different cameras over and over again, and then people had to choose which camera they liked. Mm -hmm. So which camera do you think actually came out on top? Do you think it was the $400 iPhone 4 or the $250,000 Ari Alexa? Uh, because uh, I have a special interest involved, I say the Panasonic Lumix GH2. <laughs> you know, that was actually the favorite camera of Francis Ford Coppola. Was it really? Yeah. 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 And, and so... Cameras. They are good cameras. You yeah. don't have one yet, though. You have a GH1. I right? have the GH1, but yeah. uh, you know, in many ways, you know, because I hacked mine, uh, a lot of folks think that GH1 is, you know, almost just as good. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's good to know. Yeah, just just because it's hacked and stuff. But but yeah. obviously, GH2 is, and and now the new GH3 is supposed to be really great. But we could talk about that on a different segment. Yeah. Yeah, the GH that that seems like a pretty cool camcorder. If if it only did 30p, then I would definitely get these cameras. They only do 24p. Yeah, and I don't know if there's going to be a hack to to kind of do that, but you know that I think that's why the Panasonics were are, are so popular because they're just so hackable. 
Yeah, and that's really cool. Yeah. This the cannons are starting to become more hackable now. Yeah. Um Magic Lantern's starting to come out with with uh more more capable hacks. Even the seventy has been recently hacked. Oh, is that right? A, yeah, which was a big a big one because it was so hard to hack before. Yeah, the Magic Lantern thing was was, was supposed to be able to do a a, a few th- uh, a, a few things right with, with their hacks but it but it certainly didn't uh, make the news as much as like the uh, gh1 gh2 hacks that that came out yeah well but then again uh, now, they, those cameras needed it so anyway <laughs> yeah they really needed it yeah so because they had really good lighting setups in this scene they could make up for the deficiencies in the different camcorders so for example the guy with the gh2 the director of photography for the GH2, he knew that the GH2 is really bad in low light. Right. So he just did not leave shadows in the scene. He just lit up the shadows. Oh, that's good. And and because of that, the GH2 performed pretty well. Mm-hmm. He basically just used a lot of light. And, and, and because of that, the GH2 was able to capture the colors even better. And then when they did post-production, they were able to tune it so the colors popped. So it was a really pleasing image. Now... Definitely was not the best camera. <laughs> okay. But because the lighting was really good uh, and the post-production was really good, they were able to make it filmic. But if you look at the iPhone 4 videos, you, they were able to make that look filmic as well. <laughs> okay. I mean, it looked really good. Right. It was a little... There was some weird stuttering in it, which I'm not sure why that happened. But I think because they were trying to conform it to 24p and it was 30p. Oh, okay. But, uh, and that was kind of a stupid choice. They should have just left it, whatever the frame rate was. But, um, but other than that, it looked really filmic and, and pretty much all the cameras looked really good. They have an, they had an FS100. The FS100 looked really good. Looked as good as the RE in my opinion. So a lot of it has to do with how well it's lit. You don't really have that choice sometimes. You're in a documentary situation. You can't spend two hours lighting it. Right. Sometimes I will spend two hours lighting an interview because it's so important for me to make this person look good. Right. And and some people are really sensitive to how they look. They really, they they won't want the interview to be shown unless they look really good. Right. So uh, so sometimes I do that. And I, but that's a controlled situation. Sometimes you don't have any control over lighting. With proper lighting and amount of time, pretty much any camera can look filmic. But when you eliminate a lot of that extra preparation, then sometimes the sensor actually uh, has some influence. So. Getting back to your question about does RAW give you the potential for more filmic look? If the sensor is filmic, then yes. Because then you actually have that much more control of the image in post. You can take that kind of naturally filmic quality of the sensor and then uh, do whatever you want to even bring the filmic aspects out. You know, desaturated or make it more saturated or sharper, blurrier. You can do a lot to it. Uh, the thing about raw really is that it just gives you more latitude and latitude of uh, shadows to highlights. It also gives you more uh, range of potentially range of colors uh, because there isn't processing going on in the colors before it actually gets to the file. So those two things have you have more control over. But um, in the ultimate, um, the way that things are projected on screen, it's always squeezed down to a certain range anyway so in the video world in the rgb video world the range is for each color uh, is 0 to 255 so when you're watching stuff on a computer screen or even on a movie screen everything is reduced to that range of 0 to 255 
So there's only 255 levels of of uh, brightness in a in a typical thing that you're viewing, and that's usually enough to express most. That's that's millions of colors, and and a wide range of colors. I think it's like 16 million. So that's that's probably enough to express a pretty realistic image. Um, the thing, and that's but that's 8 bit. So when you get to 10 bit or even 12 bit images, do you have the same amount of brightness range maybe you know like the darkest thing is still the darkest and the brightest thing is still the brightest but there's a lot more fine graduations in between and so if you want to you don't have to blow out the highlights you can set your sensor and your picture profile where like the sun is is still you can still show like the disk of the sun this is an extreme example but you could potentially do that and then the very shadows, you could say, I still want to express the shadow. And there's, since there's so many more little graduations in between, there's, there's less jumping between levels. So the fact that you have a raw image uh, and potentially more than 8 bits can really add to the amount of control you have in post. Like, say, say there's a certain part of the image that you, you think needs more brightness. Well, you can bring that up. Uh, and if you did that in an 8-bit image, you might see something called banding. Like mm -hmm. you would see the jump between different levels, and it looks awful. You know, it looks like an old. It's called posterization, actually, when you can actually see the the edges of different levels of things. Like an example would be like, say you had a sphere that was lit pretty evenly. You right. kind of see that graduation between light and dark. Right. But with lower bit rates, you would see bands between the different levels of gray to light. With with a higher bit recording, such as 10, 12, 14 bit, it'll be completely smooth. So that is that's really the advantage. It's not necess it's not necessarily more filmic, but if the sensor's filmic, then you can just do that much more in post. So I think I I think the the big takeaway is that it's it's just like anything. Try to record the best image, best audio that you possibly can. And then and then you can fix little things in post, but you really don't want to rely on post to actually turn something, uh, turn a vision into something that, that you weren't able to capture in the first place. Yep, that's correct. Mm -hmm. um, and especially with the kind of level of camcorders, it really depends on the le level of camcorder you have. Like uh, with a Canon DSLR, you really do have to capture the best image you can in post. Don't, don't blow it out too much and don't, certainly don't have something too dark. Uh, is, that's one of the real huge limitations to the Canon DSLRs, is when things start getting dark, uh, they start losing detail, and they get this kind of pattern noise, which is really annoying. You can actually see lines, like pixels. Uh, it's better like with the Canon 5D Mark III, but any of the other Canons are not that good in low light. I mean, everybody says how great they are in low light, and they're pretty good if, if you use a really fast lens. Right. But if you start pixel peeping in the darks, you'll see this banding and pixelization quite easily on, on the Canons. Mm -hmm. That actually does not happen as much on the Sonys. The Sonys actually have much, they're camcorders, they have much better capture of shadows, M much more detail, no real pixelization, no weirdness like the Canons have. That's also a pretty big difference. So for the Canons, you, know, you really need to make sure that the image is pretty spread across. You can't really enhance it too much in post. Sony's probably you can you can afford to do a little bit non-optimal capture and still enhance it in post. And then when you start getting to the really higher end cameras that record raw or have greater than eight bit, then you have a little bit more latitude. Right. Wow. Yeah. Uh, 
and, and you know, and I know this for sure with, with, with my GH one that, you know, lighting is really, really key. And, and you're right because you can go from one scene to the next and like have this really great looking, like for me, because of the GH one, you know, I have some fantastic, all, all my outdoor shots look so awesome. I love every outdoor shot that I ever take. It looks great mm-hmm. for me. It looks awesome. You get indoors and it starts to get a little bit funky, you know, in the sense of like, you can start losing a lot of detail. Things start to look a little grayish or bluish or depending what the light is. And, uh, you know, it, it, and, and that's just the nature of the micro four thirds and the, you know, uh, and not having a, a, a good sensor, like some of the cannons, like the Sony's and stuff like that have. Yeah, that is definitely one of the failings of the at least the GH one. Yeah, it really starts to band in yep. low light, and yep. you get all these weird color artifacts. Yep, that's probably something that GH two and probably even the GH three is really improved on. So we should we should. Uh, well, I'll I'll have to have you buy me a GH three. Okay. Then, uh, and then well, I we'll will... just have the we'll have Techmo podcast buy you one. That's right. That's right. That'll be that would be fantastic, and uh, and let me use it for the next three years until the gh4 comes out so yeah that'll be that'll be good that'll be a good yeah. test and then yeah. after after that period of time then i'll give my review okay right <laughs> <laughs> uh after that great lengthy discussion keith how would you say let, let's sum it up for our listening audience let's sum it up how does one get a filmic look to their uh to their footage well i think getting the filmic look has to do with maybe the resources that you have, uh, and also just the time, the situation that you have. If you have an unlimited time and resources, as I mentioned in the Zakudo documentary that I talked about, right? they kind of proved that if you have good lighting, you can actually get almost any camera filmic, no matter how cheap a camera is. But if you don't have the resources to do that, or you're in a situation where you can't even set up lighting because it's like a documentary or something, then if you choose a camera with a more filmic sensor, uh, such as the Canon DSLRs, then you have a better shot at getting something to look filmic. Uh, so the Canons, I think, do that really well. I think the, the new Nikons do as well. Probably things like the GH2, GH3 do that pretty well. Although starting to kind of decrease, I think as the sensor size gets smaller, then the ability to even get that filmic look decreases just because of the nature of depth of field and other issues but then if you have a um, sensor maybe that's less filmic like the fs100 then choosing better lenses really helps um, tuning your picture profile can really help and then doing a little bit of post-production it, depending on the picture profile you take can also help so there's a few things to to consider when you want to get that so-called filmic look well that that is fantastic and that's a i i think let's do this keith Let's end the segment right now because there are plenty of additional things that we should really touch on. And for me, one that stands out uh, is what is this uh, uh, picture profile thing you're talking about? I think we should talk about that. Maybe we should go on to more things like the banding, the more, the aliasing, all those great glossary terms that uh, some of us are not familiar with. I'd love to touch on those more. And, uh, you know, this is an ongoing pursuit, right, of, of the filmic look. 
it's an ongoing thing. I don't think, uh, you know, like you had mentioned at, at the first part of it, everyone's chasing this thing uh, for that film look. And uh, it's obvious that we're going to keep looking. And you know what? And, and now that, I, that we've had this discussion, I also realize that it's just kind of dependent on the filmmaker themselves on what they want to get. Some of them, you know, d don't want that kind of look. Some others, you know, uh, uh, just love it and, and insist on having it with every one of their projects. So, uh, hey, it's broadening our minds. Let's uh, let's let's have an open mind about this kind of stuff. Uh, but let's explore more of these things. Uh, so thanks a lot, Keith. Appreciate that. Yeah, you're welcome, Rodney. Yeah. Okay. Stay tuned for more great subjects here on Tech. You know, a lot of things have uh, been going on around here. We've been super, super busy. And I know Keith has had some very exciting things on his plate. He's been involved in a, in a few projects. In fact, I know, Keith, how's it going over there? Oh, it's going well. I'm just working all the time. I'm really busy. That's um, awesome. Yeah. this one. There's one kind of recent film project that I was working on. I'm just uh, finishing up the edit on it now. And uh, it has, it's a very interesting project. It has to do with um, artists teaching in uh, San Francisco schools. Oh, that sounds good. Is it a documentary? It's a very short documentary, about 15 minutes. So what'd you do? Um, well, it was, it was great. I got, it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of difficult to get permission to shoot kids uh, in schools. Uh, it's just a, very difficult. You have to get permission from the parents and from the school district <clears throat> and from the school and everybody involved. But it was a, it was a great project. It was it was a, a project um, that was pretty challenging. Uh, for one thing, it, it, things were happening really fast. So the way that this uh, artist teacher teaches the class, he he just goes in there, and the the kids are using paint and and all kinds of things to create this art. And the the interesting thing about this particular um, project for the class uh, that he was teaching was that it had to do with celebrating the 75th anniversary of the Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, a lot of this art was going to be put into uh, galleries and uh, locations throughout the city around the anniversary of the Golden Gate Bridge, 75th anniversary. But it was just a great opportunity. The kids were all beautiful and uh, really into it, smart. These were just first graders. And uh, I shot a lot of it with my uh, fairly new FS100, Sony FS100 camera. Shot it using um, mostly Canon lenses, and uh, so I had a pretty shallow depth of field. Uh, focus was pretty challenging. Um, luckily, I have a uh, I have a uh, Zakudu EVF uh, right. that it uses HDMI, plugs into the HDMI output of the uh, FS100, and it has a pretty good uh, features for focusing. Uh, has peaking, so you can it, out, it puts outlines around um, things that are in focus, and so it makes it a lot easier to focus than just the built-in uh, LCD on that particular camcorder. Uh, another another challenge was the fact that these kids are small. I mean, they're like three to I, I don't know how tall they are, but they're they're really small. They're like three or four feet tall. Right, they're first graders, and so 
you don't really want, I mean, you don't want to shoot at normal height, adult height down on them. And they just look little and small. You're not in their world. Right. So I spent a lot of it kneeling <laughs> on the floor. And I would imagine you were having to uh, use like much uh, uh, shorter tripods and stands and stuff like that. Yeah. Although I, I didn't use too many tripods. I had a couple. Um, I usually shoot with multiple cameras just to get coverage. Um, and I had those set up uh, sometimes low or sometimes on tables. But mostly it was handheld. It was me on my knees <laughs> with this FS100. Uh, and one of the things that was kind of cool, though, is I took the EVF and I was able to, I have a rig where I can uh, put some 50 millimeter rods onto the EVF and actually with another Zakuda product called, called the Zwivel. And it's basically just kind of an elbow that you can, you can put uh, onto the EVF and uh, extend it upward. So I was I actually was holding the camera around waist level and sometimes I was kneeling and I had this EVF up about maybe a foot. And so I was able to kind of look down on it and, and stabilize it that way, pushing my, my face against it. Almost like an old Hasselblad? Yeah, it was like, an, it was like, yeah, it was like a, one of those old uh, Hasselblad cameras, uh, medium format, large format cameras, but, but even lower because the, the whole uh, EVF was, was sticking up like about right. a foot. Right. And right. Uh, that worked out really well. So I definitely, it just gives you so much more um, versatility. So I was able to shoot sometimes below the kids. And oh, that that's pretty neat. Yeah, yeah. And they were doing a lot of the artwork on the floor. So uh, I had to get really low. So that was a that was a really fun project. And the film is it's I think it's one of my best so far. Um, you know, I, I do have a technical question for sure. you. You know, you were mentioning about like, uh, you know, focus was a challenge. I would imagine because you know, you have a lot of moving parts in some of your scenes. And so, and, and with you keeping a shallow depth of field, you know, isn't a lot of it really like pretty tough to keep in focus the one, the, the, the portions that you want in focus. It's really, really tough. It's, <laughs> and in fact, I don't always succeed. I mean, so there's definitely some scenes that are not perfectly in focus and I'm hoping that, uh, most, most viewers won't won't notice or care because right. the story's compelling. It's just something that happens with with uh, when you're using shallow depth of field. I mean, when they do movies, they they actually use tape rulers and measurements, and they have marks on their lenses. I mean, it's, everything is just really planned out and staged with 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 marks and measurements. And uh, but in this kind of run and gun type of documentary, you really can't have that. So you just have to be really on the focus. And sometimes it's not perfect, but, you know, it's still worth that beautiful look, I think. Absolutely. And, and I think you're, you know, it's just things that you, tricks that you'll have to figure out in the editing room, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. How, how to, how to maybe cut to another scene or cut to some other uh, angle to cover up some of the mistakes. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that sounds, uh, that sounds awesome. That sounds yeah. great. And, and you, so you use the FS 100 and, uh, did you use the, um, like your Canon 5D Mark three as a backup? No, I did not. I, I used the FS 100. That was the one, uh, large sensor camera I used. And then I used a few smaller camcorders just to capture various angles throughout the, throughout the scene, mostly on wide angles. And then later in the cut, I actually used them occasionally. Uh, sometimes I was moving around adjusting my camera and I didn't get the shot. 
So I actually use those other cameras uh, angles to substitute uh, and cut in at those points. And it worked pretty well. And I was able to uh, make them look like they were handheld. Um, oh, that's good. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah. They have really good resolution. So you can, you can zoom in pretty far. If you need to kind of reframe it, which I needed to do a lot. Actually, there's this great company that I, that I really like a lot. Um, it's called CoreMelt. CoreMelt? Right. I helped them out a little bit with some of their Steadicam software called uh, Lock and Load. So they actually gave me a free license to uh, their software for that, which was nice. Uh, so I actually use their software a lot. And they have a bunch of great plugins for both Final Cut and for Premiere Pro. I use it on Premiere Pro because that's what I edit on now. But there's this one effect called Camera Shake, and it's great. And you, it has all these different parameters, uh, X and Y axis and rotation, and you can adjust how jittery you want it. You know, it's the cameraman on. Well, that's pretty neat. Highly caffeinated or not. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes it's a little too much because the main camera was handheld. So there's definitely some shake. It's not that steady. Mm. And, uh, and that's part of the, the quality of the film. And so... On the stationary cameras that were on tripods, I, I added that effect throughout. I never had a camera that wasn't shaky, just a little bit shaky. Ah, uh, so, and, and, and that's the overall feel that you wanted with the film. Yeah, I kind of had to. There were a couple shots, little tracking slider shots, which weren't, but for the most part, it's all hand, handheld, and that's what I wanted to feel. I wanted to have the, ki the feel of kind of kids and the, their energy, which right. is a little bit random. And uh, I think I captured that. So. Yeah, so it's you know, so when you when you have something that's uh, on a tripod and you want it to look like it's handheld, just add one of these filters. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Well, I uh, let's assume that we'll put a link uh, to that plugin uh, on our uh, on our website. Yeah, we'll do that for sure. Excellent. 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 So that sounds like a lot of fun. That, that and that has been keeping you very busy. That plus some much other stuff. Yeah. Which we will talk about. We will talk about that in either this episode or uh, our next few episodes. So uh, we'll stay tuned on that. Thanks, Rod. We will take a short little break and come back with another segment right here on Tech Move. Okay, that's going to do it for another exciting episode of Tech Move. Uh, Keith, I had a good time. How about you? I had a great time. Do you want to talk a little bit about what's coming up? That would be fantastic. Let me tell you that we, in our next episode, we're going to talk about the tech of Tech Move. Right. And a lot of people have asked us, how do we actually record a podcast? And when we first started recording <laughs> our podcast, we didn't know how to either. Well, remember uh, on our uh, on our homepage of our website, you could see our first launch. Uh, it, it's the little video that we have at the bottom, and uh, yeah. we have a couple of videos. Yeah, you got to scroll all the way down, and you'll 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 see our uh, a little bit of our you know uh, growing pains as we first started. So a little bit of our growing pains, but but actually, it was it was kind of a challenge to to get this thing off the ground. And so we talk a little bit about that in the next episode. And we're also going to talk a little bit about iOS and Android. We're going to talk about Adobe versus Final Cut Pro 10 
and we're going to discuss my DIY of my homemade jib. Right, and we're going to discuss my expensive non-homemade jibs. (laughs) (laughs) And which one's better? (laughs) So we got all that. We've got a lot more to talk about. I am Rod Louie. With me is Keith Moreau. Keith, thank you so much. And remember that uh, you can always find us on iTunes and techmovepodcast.com and all the other dozen ways that you can find us here. Uh, We will catch you on the next episode of Tech Move.